Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have, I don't, we're going to ask him, I think he said the most featured cop on the TV show, Cops. And he's done so many other things. This dude is amazing. His name is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, retired from the Las Vegas Police Department. And this guy's got so many cool things happening. So do me a favor right now. Share this out. Share it out to all of your friends and family. This is going to be a great episode. Stay with us. I'll be right back with Randy Sutton. All right, let me bring Randy on. Randy, welcome to the show. Ken, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And before we get started, I want to say thank you for your service. I appreciate that. I think it's very important that people, number one, respect law enforcement, and number two, always be grateful for their service. There's something we can agree on right off the bat. <laughs> right. Right. I, uh, yeah. So, so Randy, this show's about helping people get unstuck in life. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people have life happen and they get stuck and they don't know what to do. And um, so that's what this is about. So start with telling everybody um, where you were born and raised. Okay, before I even do that, I want to talk about what you just said about people getting stuck. You know, um, this is such an important topic to me personally as well because of what I do now, which is um, run a a nationwide charitable organization called the Wounded Blue, police officers who've been injured and disabled in the line of duty. And you talk about getting stuck. We're going to talk about that a lot more, but I really appreciate the topic of, of your show and how important it is. For people to listen to so let's go back into ancient history and talk about my my uh my my uh growing up um yeah, i was sure. born in i was born in a little town called princeton new jersey where the university is and uh wow. it was a beautiful little town to grow up in um it was uh actually i had a i had what would probably be an idyllic uh, life when I growing up, I, I literally lived the the nuclear family dream of mom and dad who who uh, cared for me and supported me and um, uh, you know uh, an education in a in a great school system. But I I had a problem and that was I was very very sickly as a child. I spent oh. um, much of my my young years um, you know when I was nine ten eleven in and out of hospitals. And um, what was happening was I, I was literally almost bedridden much of the time. And um, they never could figure out what was wrong with me, but I, I literally had didn't have the energy to get out of bed. Um, I, would, uh, I would be de- horribly depressed. I couldn't go out wow. and play sports with the other kids. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember the number of times I I sat on the front stoop or looked out my bedroom window at the kids playing, um, wishing I could play with them. And I couldn't. I just didn't. I wasn't physically able to do it. And of course, my parents were were were, you know, they didn't know what to do. I was I spent I spent over a month in the Philadelphia Children's Hospital undergoing every test that you could ever imagine. And and, and they couldn't they couldn't figure out what it was. They couldn't figure out what it was. And so oh out of desperation. God. Out of desperation, my parents had a friend who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and they went to an alternative doctor. And this is in the days when alternative doctors were, you know, they were they they were treated like witch doctors if you didn't follow, you know, the the medical yeah. system as it existed. And yeah. 
but this this alternative doctor um, who was a, a, a homeopath uh, literally saved the life of my of my parents' friend, and and so out of desperation, they made an appointment with with uh, this doctor to see me. Now, talk about eccentric. Um, the doctor was in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, it was about you know an hour away from from where we lived, and he only had he only had uh, office hours from twelve midnight till four in the morning. What? So that's about as alternative as they get, right? That was that was his. That was his. Did you have time. to go down a dark alley and enter through a back door? And <laughs> well, Trenton, New Jersey, is not exactly the the Waldorf Astoria. I can tell you that. So we, and I remember, you know, when they, my parents wake me up at, 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 you know, one o'clock in the morning and said, come on, we're going to the doctor. And even as an 11 year old, I knew that, that I was in trouble, that, if, if, that wow. I got to be really sick if my parents were taking me to the doctor at one o'clock in the morning. So we knock on the door of this, of this brownstone uh, house and this little old man, this little bird-like old man opens the door and ushers us in. Dr. Samuel Getlin was his name. And wow. he was ancient. He was he was literally ancient. And he ushered us in. Now, remember, I'd been to the Philadelphia Children's Hospital, the most modern medical facility that existed back then. And I'm used to, you know, that kind of that kind of atmosphere. So this this little yeah. old man ushered us into his cluttered little office, takes me into his exam room, takes a urine sample and a blood sample. And then sends us into his waiting room to wait for him. He says, "I'm going back to my lab, right? His lab." So I'm sitting in the in the in his in his cluttered little little um, waiting room with stacks of National Geographic's three feet high. And I look at his medical degree; it's on the wall. And he graduated from medical school in the in the twenties, right? <laughs> so, oh wow! I know. And I and my parents are looking at each other like, "What are we doing here? This is." crazy and then he comes out and he ushers us into his exam room now usually they ask me what the symptoms were right yeah. I, I didn't say a word he told me all of my symptoms he said you're you are you are um, you have no energy whatsoever he says you get fat what? and then you get skinny and then you're depressed and 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 you're you're he, he laid it all out and I'm going yeah yeah and my parents are looking at him like Wow, how do you know all this? And he turned to my parents, and then he told me what I ate. He says, "You eat cheeseburgers, you eat ice cream, you do this, you do that." And and I'm going, "Yeah, yeah." He turned to my parents. He says, "Your son is starving to death." And we all looked at him like, "What?" what? He says, "Your your son is nutritionally deficient in every category. He's literally starving to death from hypoglycemia, which is just the opposite of diabetes." And he said that because he is he is so starved for nutrients, his body cannot function. And what? he literally changed my life that night. I had to take 72 vitamins a day for years. 72? 72. And oh then my, my diet, I no no sugar, no white flour, no this, no that, no, I mean. The man was so far ahead of his time under understanding nutrition, and it literally changed my metabolism, and I became healthy. And it's all because of a little old nutritionist doctor who knew a whole wow. lot more than anybody else about how to save a life of someone who was nutritionally deficient. It was, and it was life-altering for me, literally life-altering. I mean, I, I mean, right. It, it would, I guess going from not being able to go outside and play to that is insane, man. And, and wow. It's amazing to me. Cause I, I, I know I, I like, I love naturopath stuff. I love that. I've had, I've had a lot of the, the naturopath doctors on the show and um, I love what you're talking about here. Did you continue like up to this day? Do you, are you like very um, aware of what you're putting into your body as far as nutrition? I am. I am. And uh, 
you know, it's I'm not I'm not going to say I, I certainly am not strict like I was in those days because my metabolism, sure. you know, um, evened out. So I can you know, I can I can do the, the cheating every now and then. But I am very yeah. aware of wow. uh, of of, of uh, you know, my eating issues and and uh, remaining yeah. healthy. And it's yeah, it's um, it's something that I, I'm not hesitant to talk about because I am such a, a huge believer. But that's set. That set me on the course of my life that you know continued to the continues to this day. So I become healthy over a couple of years, um, and wow. uh, and my and my life changed, and I was able to yeah. you know start you know getting into into good physical shape. Um, right. And and but also here's the other part of of how you know you talk about your life getting stuck, right? I was stuck in bed for you know years. And, um, you know, I wasn't all the time I went to school. I did, but I had, you know, it was, it was, it was a, it was a challenge. And yeah. from that, my, my, um, um, kind of my existence really revolved around my reading. And I, I, I read ferociously. I mean, I read books, I read magazines. Um, it was everything. And, uh, it was, it was a, an entirely different, um, way, way for me to grow up. But because of my reading, when I was in those formative years, I became a writer later on, not trained in anything, but simply because I had consumed so many yep. books that, that it was, it wound up to be a natural path for me. Forgive the pun, natural path. Yeah, but I know. know. <laughs> I almost so, went, um, but I'm bumped. <laughs> So uh, wow. I I I, um, I go through my my uh, formative years, and while I was in high school, now I always knew what I was going to be. I always knew that I was going to become a police officer. That was to me because being a protector was always so important to me. Wait, and it wait, kind of wait, wasn't stop. Like, that that's that's that was actually my next question. So you knew as a child that you wanted to be a police officer. Yeah. And I, you know, and I consider myself lucky because I always had the direction. And so I pointed my life in that direction and I didn't do anything to screw myself up from becoming a cop. Right. I was, I was a, always a, you know, a, a decent citizen. Um, I yeah. believed in, in, but I did believe in protecting others. Uh, my great, my grandfather was, uh, was a deputy who was shot in the line of duty and uh, he survived. But I remember being mesmerized by that massive scar in his stomach where he got hit with a shotgun blast from a poacher of all things. And oh, my parents Lord. were both uh, court reporters. So I grew up listening to the, you know, the cases. And, and so anyway, I was always kind of intrigued by that. And then in the weird way that the world works, I was in high school and I was a junior in high school and I, yeah, Princeton was a very, very liberal high school even back in this, in the seventies when I was there. And, um, and there were some bullies that really ran roughshod over, over the school. And uh, I ran afoul of them on several occasions. And every time <laughs> I did, I would get, I would wind up in a fight and I would wind up getting thrown out of school. So about the fourth or fifth time I'm in the principal's office and they called my mother because she had to come pick me up again. And the principal and I actually got along very well. He knew that every time I was in a fight, it, it was because of the protectionism that I had absorbed. Right. Yeah. So he actually had respect for me, uh, even though they, you know, they had the no tolerance. You get in a fight, you, you get suspended. So one one afternoon I'm in his office and the Princeton Police Department, very small department, 32 cops. But each year they would bring a cadet in. And that cadet was chosen from being a junior in high school. So I wow. happened to be in his office when he happened to be talking to the chief of police about uh, recommending a new cadet for that year. And I heard the conversation and I was doing this. I was, hey, me, me, choose me. Yeah. And you and were a junior. Got this funny look on his face, and he said to the chief, "Chief, I think I have the perfect candidate for you." 
Wow. And that's how I got hired as a cadet with the prison and police department. But you, which, so you were, you were a junior in high school, you said? Yes. Okay. Wow. Wow. And that's, man. and the cadet was really basically a gopher, you know, yeah. but you got to learn a little bit about what, what goes into policing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I loved it. I loved it. I knew it was my path. And once again, fate played an incredible role. So um, because I was getting thrown out of school all the time, I decided to take extra course credits and graduate early. So I did. I graduated early. I turned wow. 18. And just that year, the state of New Jersey changed the age of majority from 21 to 18, which meant that you could drink, you could vote, and you could also become a cop. They didn't think that went out very, very much at 18, right? Wow. <laughs> So, um, and then because I graduated early, I had all of the, you had to have a high school, you know, degree or high school, you had to graduate. Yeah. So when the police test came up, I took the police test. Now, generally speaking, they only hired one cop every three or four years. Right. And, uh, and there was, so there was no, there, there was one opening and they, they knew they'd weren't going to hire me at 18 years old, but they, they wanted to keep me interested. So I wound up number two on the list. Now about, I want you to know about 800 people took this police test and I wound up number two. Wow. Um, and, and, uh, but you know, they had no intention of hiring me, but and then, this is with, this is with Princeton. This is with Princeton. Okay. So in, in, in the weird way that the world works, however, um, I continued working for the department um, as a, as an unpaid cadet, even though, you know, they whenever they needed somebody to fill in, like work at the desk, you know, answer the yeah. phone, something like that, they would call me and I'd come in. And then meanwhile, I'm going to college. I've got a full-time job. And the, one of the guys that I worked with from the time I was a cadet was, was a fellow named Johnny. Johnny was this crusty old, old uh, Navy veteran who was towards the end of his career. He had like three or four more years to go. And, yeah. uh, but he, he was one of these guys with really rough on the outside, but really kind on the inside. Yeah. So we always, we always, and I worked with him a lot cause he was a permanent desk officer. So one day there's a hurricane happening and, and it's a real, you know, it's a real hurricane. So I knew the department was going to need help. So I went in to help and to work the desk and um, and uh, the next shift was supposed to come on at three o'clock. And and John was Johnny was one of those people that was supposed to be there and he didn't show up. And so we figured, you know, we called his house and she she said his wife said that he left for the for the to get to work. And we figured, okay, well, maybe because of the storm, he got stuck somewhere. So that right. we're just continuing to work. And I, I went down to use the locker room and I opened the door and there's John on the floor. He came in and had a heart attack. Oh. And I wound up doing CPR on him, trying to save his life. And I couldn't. Wow. And wow. As, as you know, we're, we're dealing with that. Um, one of the cops walks up to me and says, I know this isn't the way you didn't want it but you're now a cop. Wow. Yeah. And you were what? How old were you at that point? 19. Holy crap. So, yeah. so you, 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 um, because of a sudden opening on the force, you, um, wow, man. So let, let me ask don't, you. Don't think that that hasn't, that that's, that that's played a role in my, in my yeah. brain ever since, you know? Yeah. And I'm uh, sure, you know, but so, you know, the, 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 the fates work in very, very strange ways. And uh, yeah. so I spent 10 years as a cop there and I was, a what, did you finish college? I no, I've never, I never finished college. Okay. I took a bunch okay. of college courses, but I never got a degree. Right. And, right. Uh, and, and you know what? I don't think it ever affected me one way or the other, not having a degree. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, yeah, I, I, learned, I learned my life on the streets. 
And Princeton yeah. was a great place. However, small town, college town, I wanted action. I was bored. And I should have right. left much earlier because I was almost halfway to retirement when I finally made the decision, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and wow. I researched different departments and uh, heard great things about the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Came out to Las Vegas, took the police test, was uh, immediately um, given the opportunity to come to work for them and changed my life. I mean, literally, it was very difficult leaving my family, going to a city where I would have to start all over. I'd have to go through the academy yeah. again, have to go through oh, wow. the entire process again. So you got to swallow your pride and suck it up and uh, and know what your goal is. And I spent yep. 24 years as a Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department uh, officer retiring as a lieutenant. Um, and the the uh, the story of my retirement is probably the most uh, important of uh, of the topics of where I am now. Yeah, and we're we're definitely going to get to that because you're right. It, it's a very um, it's a big segue into where you are now. But um, you know, talk about because I, now when you started with Las Vegas, and I lived there for 13 months um, in a gated community with armed guards, <laughs> and I remember thinking, "Is it really that bad that we have to have armed guards? This looks like a nice area, but it's <laughs> that bad. It it is that bad." Um, so so talk about you know, where did you start as a, like, were you a beat cop and were you, how, what were you, what did you yeah, do? I literally, I literally had to start all over at the very beginning. Wow. So I had to go, you know, through the Academy again, and then wow. you spend six months in field training with a, with a, a field training officer. And you literally get evaluated every single day. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of pressure. I'm and, sure. And if you didn't, if you didn't cut it, you were gone. You were gone. Yeah. And I had no place to go. I had cut all my, my ties. Right. Yeah. I couldn't go back to go to back to Princeton. So I was, let's say I was highly motivated to succeed. Sure. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, it was, but talk about an eye opening experience. You know, that, you know, the, the old adage, be careful what you wish for. So yeah. I was still, I was still on probation before I was in my first shooting. And, uh, and it was a 15 year old kid tried to, tried to kill me. Oh and uh, it was, uh, um, we were chasing, it was graveyard shift. And I was in a gang infested area. It was a wow. stolen car we got in pursuit. The, the car crashes, a bunch of the uh, three or four of the gang bangers jump out. I'm chasing the driver. And it's, we're in a, in a, um, a housing area and um, low-income housing. And I, I just can't quite catch him. You know, I'm on his, on his butt, but he's, he's 15 years old. I later came to find out. Right. And fast as the wind, I'm not. And, and as right. I'm running, running behind him, he goes around the corner of a building and I've got my gun in my hand. Um, yeah. And when I come around the corner of the building, he's waiting for me. Oh, he's turned geez. towards me and he's got the gun pointed right at me. He was oh waiting to God. ambush me. And instantaneously I fired around at him and he was right next to the right next to the 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 outside wall of the house. Well, my bullet missed his head by about half an inch. And wow. but what happened was when when I hit the the stucco wall behind him, a piece of the stucco hit him in the head. And he thought he was shot. Oh, my God. And he, and he threw the gun down, and I took him into custody. That's when I found oh out he was 15. Holy so, crap, dude. Wow. <laughs> I know. So wow. you're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just getting ready to say Las Vegas is such a boring place. Like, it, it's there's there can't be a whole lot of action there. I'm kidding. Like. Oh That's, yeah, it was so it was nonstop throughout my career. I cannot imagine. I I remember the last time I was there, it was 
they had just legalized marijuana. <laughs> I'm like, what? And my wife and I are walking down the boulevard and, and the strip and, and we've got our young little daughters that are with us. And I'm like, everybody's high now. What the hell's going on here? It's crazy. So, well, so it's still like that. There's, there's a haze. There's a haze of uh, pot smoke uh, basically over the entire strip. Yeah. That just blows my mind. I've done, I've done a lot of work um, in technology for narcotics officers and it just blows my, it just I, blows my mind. But anyway, well, that's a whole nother episode. Um, talk about, you know, was there anything during your career um, did you ever get into like becoming a detective? Did you do any of that kind of work at all? Or yeah, I had a I had a very wide, varied career. Um, I did uh, uh, well. I was a patrol officer. Then I became a field training officer. When wow. field training officers are the unsung heroes of the of the police profession, you never hear about them, but they're vital because they are the ones that actually take a raw recruit and mold them into being a real cop. And yeah. so I really relished that role. In fact, my entire rest of my career almost that I spent in patrol division um, was in some way, shape or form involved with the field training program. So I know how valuable it was. So I did a field, I was a field training officer and then I became a narcotics detective. Oh, wow. Now this was now, but <laughs> I had a I had a checkered I had a checkered um, uh, tenure as a narcotics detective because in in uh, when I was still a patrol officer I was featured on the TV show Cops. Yeah, that was the first year that I was on the TV show, and they got a ton of shows with me, and that was wow. the most popular. Vegas ve venue was the most popular on the TV show Cops because we had yeah. such cool stuff going on, right? So right. then I become yeah. then I become a, a detective, an undercover detective, wow. right? So, yeah. so I can tell you this is a funny story. So we're following a, a, a narcotics dealer, and he was a he was a fairly substantial uh, dope dealer, and yeah. uh, we're we're at a, one of the hotels, and yeah. you know I'm dressed. I got a I even got a beard now. I've I dressed wow. I'm dressed in you know like an undercover. And I'm, we're on a surveillance. We're and we're we're a five person team, so we're you know very careful about making sure that you know we we you know pass each other we pass each other off so that he doesn't make us as as you know here's this guy that's been following me all this time. But we're walking through the pool area, and suddenly, one of the people at the pool area says, "Hey, it's Randy Sutton from Cops." Oh no, yeah. dude. <laughs> <laughs> wow! And from that moment on, I was known as Backdraft because I got burned so bad. <laughs> oh my God! Wow! Yeah. So they probably didn't want you working a lot of undercover stuff. And and what's and every now and then I would I would I would actually do some of the narcotics buys from the dope dealers. And one time I'm in a I'm in a bad guy's house, and it, it's this is very very hairy. Um, narcotics officers who do undercover work have have huge cojones. I got to tell you. Yeah. And yeah, I'm in this. I'm in this guy's apartment. There's a, one of his one of his. Uh, they're they're gangbangers, and there's yeah. a couple other gangbangers working doing security. My backup team is in surveillance vehicles around the parking lot, and they've got actual surveillance people on foot looking doing counter surveillance. So this is a, this is a, and, and I'm all by myself, right? And I got Are a gun. Carrying? What's that? You, you do have a gun on you? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I'm there trying to make a, a buy. Right. And one of the, one of the guys there says, man, he says, you look familiar to me. And I'm thinking, oh no, don't, don't tell me he's going to put this. <laughs> right? And, and the whole time he's, he's saying, he says, you look so familiar to me. Where, where have I seen you? And I said, I, I got one of those faces, man. I, I was sweating it. 
I was sweating it. Oh my god! And they actually sold me the dope, and I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. Uh, and so I and did. all of a sudden, you hear the theme song from Cobb start playing. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> So oh um, I did that, then I became a, and right from there, I, I was promoted to sergeant. And that, I, I stayed, I was a sergeant for almost 14 years. That oh, was the wow. best, that, to me, that was the best position on the police department. Yeah. You got to actually be a leader. You got to take young police officers and and mold them into um, into the future, into yeah. what, they, what they, they could be. And you played a huge role in their lives. And I did that for 14 years. Um, then became I was in the in the I wound up becoming promoted to uh, um, the head of the advanced training division, and uh, and then from there promoted to the rank of lieutenant. And I went back to patrol, which is my first love, and spent the rest of my career as a graveyard lieutenant um, in the in the patrol division at my wow. choosing, because in Vegas. Where's the action? A graveyard. In graveyard, right? Yeah. And uh, and uh, that's where I spent the remainder of my career until the fateful night that that changed everything for me. So so um, now we when and that was you retired. What year? What year was it that you were? Two thousand ten. Two thousand ten. So I had so twenty four well. years. I had twenty four years on the. On the Las Vegas Police Department. Wow, man, that's incredible. That's so incredible. And for those that have never been to Vegas who are watching, <laughs> like you don't even know, like that. That's like unbelievable because there's always like it's hard to walk down the strip without seeing something absolutely insane that's probably illegal in some way. Like in right in front of cops, I've seen it happen. Like right in front of you know. So yeah, it's, it's crazy, man. Um, so talk about the fateful night that everything, uh, changed and you were, you were, um, you know, you became retired after that. Well, um, I want to mention that, that during, I wasn't only a cop during all this time. So I had been oh. featured on three seasons of the TV show cops. I was right. the most featured officer on the show, including when I was a sergeant. Wow. And um, one day I'm, I'm, I get a phone call from a casting director. Um, Randy, uh, there's gonna, we're, we're going to be filming a TV or a movie in, in Vegas. And the director wants realism in the part of a police officer. Would you come down and do an audition? We saw you on Cops. And I said, sure. So I, I, I walk into a suite at the old Riviera Hotel. And I, I listen. I'm doing this on a lark, right? And this is just right. kind, of, kind of fun. And I walk in, and who's standing there? But Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. Wow. And it was it was the film Casino. So wow. Usually they give you some lines to read, yeah. and uh, it, before they could do that, I just started a conversation with them, telling them funny stories about being a cop in Vegas. Yeah. And they said forget the the lines you got the part and that's how i got and that's how i be, began my acting career such as it is got in the wow. screen actors guild um and uh and i've been doing movies and tv ever since and um also along those you know those fateful lines uh, i never intended to be a writer you know i think i alluded at the, at the beginning yep. of this that you know i spent a lot of time reading as a child but i had a life changing experience in um, in 1989, and I was on patrol as a sergeant, and uh, during in the evening, and I, I came upon a car that was up on the sidewalk, people running around screaming, and I have no idea what the problem is, but I know it ain't good, right? And, uh, and, and radioed for a backup, and as I jumped out of the car, um, somebody screams, "Oh my God, the baby's been shot!" And there's bullet oh. holes all over the car. Oh my! And God. what had happened was a young family, mom and dad from El Salvador and a one month old baby in the infant seat. were just driving down the street and, and a car full of gangbangers pulled up alongside of them. And it was a gang initiation and they just uh, opened fire on the car for no reason whatsoever. Oh my God. And one of the shots hit the baby in the face. 
Oh. So I get there and I'm literally there within within minutes of this happening. And the scene is bedlam. You know, there's people running around screaming. They've got bullet holes in the car. I got a little baby there. I, I don't know if the shooter is still there. It's but you know, this is what you do. Radio I radioed for the ambulance, radioed for more backup, and went down to check the, the baby. Now remember, she's one month old. Her her head is the size of a softball. Oh my god. And I checked her and she wasn't breathing. And a bullet had hit her right in the face. Oh my god. So the protocol is you wait for the ambulance. But I knew that if I waited for the ambulance, this baby was going to die. So the first patrol car that got there, I scooped her up. I said, get me to the hospital. When the when the bullet hit her in the face, all this tissue and stuff went down into her throat and choked her. And I was wow. able to scoop it out and give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and bring her back. Oh, my God, dude. And uh, And because I was there within minutes, because whatever whatever you want to call it fate or god or higher power whatever it is put me there at that particular time there was no brain damage because you know i oxygenated her again you know before before there was brain damage handed her off to the hospital and and saved her life and she's still in my life today but wow that, that moment that moment ken was so life-changing for me it was so it was it was so poignant that i went home brought out the bottle of scotch took out a yellow pad and a pen and i wrote the story called her name was jackie oh and, my god uh, and didn't have anything to do with it i just felt like i needed to write it so i put it away in 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 a in a my desk and there it sat for years until the World Trade Center was attacked in 2001. And then I felt so um, so impotent not being able to help those officers there. Uh, suddenly it came to me, you know what? Every cop I know has a story like that. I'm going to ask them to write those stories. I'm going to put them in a book. And I'm going to donate all the money that we make from this to the families of those cops who were killed. So I, I I have a question and I, and I I we're we're this we're in the segue just so you guys know we're in a an unbelievable segue but I have a question for you because I I told you when we talked you know a lot of my friends in Ohio are law enforcement officers um, ranging from from patrol to to lieutenant uh, one of my best friends is a lieutenant. Um, I, how do you, I sit here and I hear that story and, um, I, I think, how do you personally, I feel like this, maybe I shouldn't say this publicly. I feel like if I were that in your shoes and had gone through that, I would be so pissed off that I would want to hunt them down and just, you know, that's it. Lights out for you. You don't deserve to be here. You shot a baby. You're done in this life. That's the way I feel about it. It pisses me off. How do you go from holding this little baby, saving its life, which is amazing to going back on the streets the day later to whenever it was and, and not being really an, an, an hour later, Ken. An, an hour, hour later, later, and not being so pissed off that you want to hurt people. What makes you think I didn't? <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Okay. There you go. It's 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 a it's a it's a very lucky thing for them that our paths did not cross. Right. I'm, it's unbelievable to me, man, that the, the stuff that you, you go through and, and you can still go out and protect and serve and, and live up to that. That's, it's just, it, it's unbelievable to me. Well, you know, and that, that's, that's interesting you say that because in my current life, um, I deal with, with the pain of others that are experiencing exactly what you just described. 
Right. And, and, you know, and, and everybody, every, everybody, um, metabolizes, I'm going to use that word, metabolizes the violence, the heartache, the cruelty that they see throughout their police careers. And some metabolize it in a healthy way. Some do not. And, and so you have every part of the spectrum being covered from, you know, people that say, you know, I'm just not, I can't do this anymore to, um, you know, people that, you know, start indulging in, you know, copious amounts of alcohol, yeah. prescription drugs, where suicide rate is off the hook. Right. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, what I do now is, 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 is very, probably the most important thing that I've ever done, which is try to save lives of police officers yeah. through our organization. You, I mean, I, I've heard the stories, man. I have a friend that begged a guy not to pull the trigger on a 12 gauge shotgun he had in his mouth and the dude did it. And he, he had to live with and frightened 10 feet from him, you know, and he, and he had to live, he, he has to live with that for the rest of his life. And I, people don't understand. And Randy, I want to get this message out. I'm sure as much as you do um, that, that, you know what? Cops are not necessarily superhumans they're just humans that are that are trying to trying to do a job and and they're so um law enforcement officers i think get a bad rap and and it's it's sad to me that um that it's gone down the way it has especially in the last few years um so so Talk about the, the, the wounded blue and how that all came about and, 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 you know, the, the books and everything that you're doing, tell everybody what you're doing. Well, so I didn't intend to retire when I, when I did, Ken, um, that, that decision was made for me. I was on patrol one night as a Lieutenant yeah. and whenever I was the watch commander, which meant I was the highest ranking person on duty and, and would respond to any major event, I would take yeah. a patrol officer with me. So that way I could get to know my people. Remember the Las Vegas police department is the ninth largest department in the country. So, right. you know, we didn't, we don't know, we don't all know each other. Right. So I would get to learn about my folks by taking them in a patrol car with me, because you get to learn about somebody with eight in eight hours in a police car. Trust yep. me. Yep. Yeah. So I had this young cop with me. It was 2.30 in the morning. We're driving down Las Vegas Boulevard right in front of the old Bally's Hotel. And I'm talking to him like I'm talking to you. And suddenly I found myself talking slower. And I had no control over it. And I realized that my brain was slowing down, that I was having a stroke. I knew exactly what was happening. So I stopped the police car and I told him, get me help. I'm having a stroke. And he looked at me like, is this the way the lieutenant screws with people? You know? Wow. And he, then he realized, oh, no, he's not playing a game. And I got out of the police car to go around the pastor side case. He needed to get me to the hospital. And started speaking gibberish. And I knew I was speaking gibberish. I had no control over it. I knew, I knew what I was trying to say, but that's not what was coming out of my mouth. Wow. And then I lost the ability to speak altogether. And then I lost the ability to move and I crumpled to the pavement. Oh and my God. They they're helpless. And I can tell you this quite honestly, I was not afraid of dying. Ken, I was afraid of living like that. Right. And, um, once again, the angel has been on my shoulder, my entire police career. Cause I haven't told you about some of the really scary stuff that have happened. Um, but once again, that angel was on my shoulder and, uh, the clot went through my brain without leaving a lot of permanent damage. And, uh, wow. And, uh, so, but here's my last on duty memory. I'm laying there helpless on the pavement and tourists are walking by me, taking my picture. Right. And, uh, and, you know, the officer had called for an officer needs help. And cops, you know, put a protective ring around me 
till the ambulance could get there. And and here, while I'm laying there helpless, I, I one of my cops said to somebody, if you don't get that camera out of his face, I'm going to take it off you and stick it up your ass. <laughs> right. I remember thinking, that's the Metro I know and love right there. <laughs> right. Wow. So, but that ended my police career. And uh, I wow. should mention that three weeks prior to that, my mother died in my arms. After, oh, my God. Uh, and uh, two months before that, I was involved in another fatal shooting. And oh. so there was a lot going on in my life while th when this took place. But it ended my police career. And suddenly I'm left literally with nothing but loss. I've lost my mom. I've lost my job. I've lost my identity as a cop. And I was planning for my retirement five years down the road. And suddenly it's just yanked out from under you. Wow. And then what happened next was the most shocking thing to me. And that was that my own police department turned its back on me and refused to pay my medical bills. Oh, my God. And I was, wait, wait a minute. You have, you have to pay my medical bills. This is an on-duty injury, and it's covered by statute. I have benefits that, that are part of this contract that I had with you when I, did, when I put my life on the line for this city. Every day. And they said, yeah, well, take us to court. And I wound up having to go through a, a, a almost a year of fighting them for them to pay my medical bills. The bill collectors are knocking on my door. They ruined my credit. Wow. They, uh, they, and I came to find out, this is the most shocking thing. They knew they were going to have to pay eventually, but they also knew it would take about a year. And they were betting on the fact that I would die in the meantime. Wow. So that was that was a moment or you know a time when I felt completely abandoned. I felt alone. I can tell you there was a lot of dark thoughts that went through my head. Sure. What I mean, what was it all worth? What was what was why service worth? Yeah. And from being so noticeable in the law enforcement community, from the books and the movies, from being a trainer, right? Well, cops yeah. started reaching out, out to me. Randy, I know you don't know me, but I was shot in the line of duty. My chief never came to visit me in the hospital. They're not paying my medical bills. Randy, I know you don't know me, but I was hit by a car. They're not paying my medical bills. Randy. I wish I died that night. At least I wouldn't be a burden to my family. I mean, one after another after another. And I kept on saying, okay, wait a minute. Hold on a second. There's wow. got to be resources for these men and women. The depression right. that they're going through, the, the, the struggle, the feeling alone. And realize there was no national resource for these men and women. And so I created it. And that is the Wounded Blue. And we are the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers, a nationwide charity that's helped more than 15,000 police officers in the last four years. That is so powerful, man. Wow. Okay, let me unpack this a little bit. So you went from... Um, I'm trying to... I'm, I'm choked up, man. I just, it's like crazy that, that, that any law enforcement officer would ever have to go through that ever. I mean, you guys put it all on the line uh, and there. And look, we can talk about this briefly, but very briefly that we all know there are some bad apples in the cart. And, and of course, and I know a some of my best friends, they go home to their, fa their family, men, their family, women, they they have kids, they have a life. They, they just happen to put on a uniform and a badge and a gun and go to work every day, protecting other people. And then they're treated like shit as a result of it. And then to have 
your own department treats you that way is just mind-boggling to me. It is it is mind-boggling and it's take and it's taking place right now to this day. I could tell you story after story after story. And what we do is my entire team is made up of cops who have been shot or stabbed or beaten or run over and abandoned and alone. And together we have created this amazing organization and they are called peer team advocates. They're all trained and certified counselors. Some are in wheelchairs, some are on crutches, some are still working. But every one of these men and women is devoted to helping their brothers and sisters and, and talk about service, that even if after they can't serve as a cop anymore, they serve anyway. And it is they are they're the heroes of the wounded blue. Unbelievable. So talk about that. Talk about the the you know, I I mean, I have a lot of LEO friends that may watch this show. They will, because I'm going to send it to them, um, you know, that watch this show and and they're, maybe they're going through something like this. How do they get in touch with you? What What's the next step? And let, let, let's, let's preface it by saying this. I have a, a really good friend. I won't mention his name, but he's been in law enforcement a long time. And I was having a conversation. I've been an entrepreneur for 30 years. And I said, dude, you know, uh, do you, he's like, I, no, I hate, I hate, I hate it <laughs> working as because of the politics. Right. Right. And I said, right. I said, well, start your own business then. get the hell out of it. And he's like, yeah, I've always dreamt of starting this one business, but dude, I, I, nah, you know, I'm, I can't, I can't do that. The, you know, and I said, why? And he's like, I don't know. He's more, we, we unpacked it. And I, he's more comfortable running into a dark building at night, chasing a guy with a gun shooting at him than starting <laughs> his own damn business. Like, what the hell? I don't get that, dude. That's that's a mental illness. You realize that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but like, you, you know, I'm telling you, man, that's so, so how does somebody get in touch with you and, um, yeah, how does somebody get in touch with you about this? Well, I want to tell you about a, an incredible event that we have coming up in September. This is for every police officer and their and their their spouse. Um, it's called. This is the third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. It's going to be held in Las Vegas, September twenty sixth to the twenty ninth, and this is unbelievable training. This is life changing training. It's every aspect of surviving a law enforcement career not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically, of dealing with relationships, of dealing with spirituality, of your fiscal issues. It's every aspect with some of the most incredible speakers in the country. And we this is our third event, the third annual event. It is it's life saving. I've I, I could tell you this without without any exaggeration at all. I've had cops tell me being at this saved their life. Because they realized they weren't forgotten, they weren't alone, that there was help for them. We got I've gotten people into treatment as soon as they walked out of the doors. Um, this is really important. I, I highly recommend that if you are a law enforcement officer, you make this happen. It's only 295 bucks. That's all it is. And 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 your meals are paid for, there's entertainment. It's because I don't I don't do a, a conference unless we have fun as well. Okay, so that's yeah. part of the deal, and uh, but th this is th this is this should be mandatory for every police officer in America. And if you are a law enforcement leader, send your cops, send your cops, they'll view you as being someone who cares if you do that, and that's what's so important. So, um, but to 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 find us is so easy, um, thewoundedblue.org. We also have a tremendous documentary film. If you go to Amazon.com, put in The Wounded Blue, it'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind, this this film, The Wounded Blue. Really? And um, we, you can reach us on Facebook. Everything that you tell us is confidential. There'll be, there'll be a peer team member that will reach out to you, and they'll be, they'll be your, your resource for life. We're also a resource for every cop in America and every police now, department in America. We, we, I send teams to places that their cops are really suffering and we'll spend, we'll spend time with them, helping them 
cope with the issues that are that's facing them. So um, the woundedblue.org. And here's the other part, Ken. We are a we're a charity. We don't get money from the government. Uh, we don't get grants, unfortunately. Everything is through um, business people that care about us and people that donate to us. So if you're a business person and you want to become a sponsor of one of our events like the Survival Summit, contact me personally, Randy at thewoundedblue.org. And that's, I mean, it, we, we really, really count on the people who care about their cops enough yeah. to donate 10 bucks a month or whatever they can do. Um, I, I can tell you that I've had some amazing um, people hear my story. I was on Neil Cavuto's show about a year ago, and I was telling the story about the Wounded Blue. And uh, 20 minutes later, a guy calls me. We get in a conversation, and he sent me a check for $100,000. So amazing. Um, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for that next $100,000 donor to listen to me. <laughs> Maybe they're listening to this show right now. Yeah, that's amazing, dude. Um, somebody type that in the comments for me, his email address, randy at thewoundedblue.org, please. Randy at thewoundedblue.org. Uh, look, I, I think that, um, I mean, obviously this is a, a what about what about other first responders? Thank you, Robert Brooker. What about other like fire firefighters and because they they have their they have their um, very similar issues as well. Very very much so. Um, I can only bite off what I can bite off. Right. And uh, I, you know, we we have actually talked about um, the wounded red. You know, some sometime when we're you know more uh, fiscally able to do it to sure. uh, to develop that as well, but. I got to tell you, I got my hands full um, yeah. right now, just dealing with what we, what we, with the people that I deal with. Well, I, I, um, I think that every every law enforcement officer, and I've been to um, as a <laughs> as a civilian, I've been to some of these law enforcement officer gatherings, and um, they definitely know how to have fun. So, um, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What, what, uh, you know, let me ask you, um, uh, you know, I, this, this is a lot, this, this is a lot. And I, my brain is literally just running at a million miles an hour right now. But let me ask you this, what, what in life in general, whether it's law enforcement or anyone, um, what do you think stops people from experiencing it all, from having it all, from the the spirituality, joy, money, financial, everything? What do you think holds people back? I think people are held back by their own fears. Um, yeah. By I mean, you you just mentioned it that you have a friend who'd been a cop. Cops have a lot more skills than they think they do. Yeah, and uh, being the 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 fear of it <laughs> oh excuse me bless you the fear of of uh, venturing into the unknown yeah. is is really something that holds us holds us back and um, yeah. i i think that that is probably we're, we're our own worst enemy in that regard but it's yeah. really difficult to make that that transition and say you know what i believe in myself i believe yeah. that i can do it and that's why you have to have a strong support system behind you that and, and also the guidance you yep. know yes we are we are all capable but you know we need we need mentors we need people that that have the skills are willing to share those skills and there's a lot of selfish people out there that don't want to do that but there's also a lot of really really good people that yep. are willing to share that and support others yep amen i agree I agree. Well, if you would like to support the Wounded Blue, go to thewoundedblue.org and there's a donate button. You'll see the you'll see the 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 link down going down the page. You'll see for the the conference um, for the 2023 National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. 
it's on there. Looks like I'm looking at it right now. It looks like there's a nice little video, couple videos um, on there as well for this. So um, make sure you go um, check it out. And and look, if you can't afford a financial donation, um, <coughs> excuse me, that came out of nowhere. Um, if you can't afford a financial donation, share this out. That that'll help. Like, you know, we all, we all know somebody in law enforcement. So share this thing out over and over and over. Let's get as many eyeballs on this video as possible on every platform that we're on, which is every platform there is. So Jose Garza, thank you, my brother. I appreciate you, man. Um, Jose shared it out. So listen, I am um, very grateful for you, Randy. Your story is is so powerful. Again, thank you for your, your service. It's, it's incredible what you've done in your career um, and your continued service to help other people in service. It's crazy. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, Ken. And uh, it was, uh, it was, it was great to be here. So uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. We will. So stay with me if you would, Randy, um, everybody watching, I'm going to end the live stream but thank you to everyone, your comments and your shares and everything else. So thank you so much. See you all later. Thank you, Randy.